This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, six months after Congress passed a relief package for struggling theaters and music venues, the Small Business Administration says less than 3% of applicants have received funding. The SBA has done just about everything you can do wrong in this process. Coming up, we'll explore the issues surrounding the relief effort. And we'll also hear about a recently signed transportation bill that will raise billions of dollars in funding for our state's roads and bridges. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. Governor Jared Polis signed a $5.4 billion transportation bill into law on Thursday under a bridge along I-70 where many Coloradans get stuck in traffic on the way up to the mountains. The bridge at the bottom of Floyd Hill is targeted for a $700 million renovation, a hefty price tag, though the transportation bill will raise billions of dollars for Colorado's roads and bridges in the years ahead. KUNC's state capital reporter Scott Franz attended the signing in person and agreed to stay on location out in the heat a bit longer to tell us about the signing of the bill. Hey, Scott. Hey, Henry. So you're under Interstate 70 near Floyd Hill, where the signing took place on Thursday. Tell us more about that. Because this was such a big transportation proposal, they wanted to sign it somewhere where you could see what the impact of it would be. So, you know, we're, we're sitting under this uh, bridge that's um, you can see had, has been repaired with uh, wood, and uh, which is a little unnerving as you're, you're sitting here just watching all the traffic go by. You can smell the brakes from the trucks coming down I-70. Yeah, definitely a unique setting. Tell us about this bill that is the reason for the occasion. The headline on this one is it's going to raise billions of dollars for Colorado's transportation system over the next 11 years. And, and to do that, it's a fundamental shift of, of how Colorado pays for its roads. Um, so under this legislation, pretty much everyone is going to start paying new fees next year when they go to the gas pump, when they hop in an Uber, when they order things from Amazon. And the thinking is, you know, the gas tax hasn't been raised in so long. Um, this bill really puts the cost on the people who use the roads directly or indirectly. Transportation funding has proven to be a sticky issue in years past. And so this signing seems like a big deal just for that reason. What's your sense on that? Why did it get through this year? Well, the bill sponsors today, you know, the, these bill signings are usually a victory lap. And a lot of them had a chance to reflect on just that very question. And, you know, what they talked about was there were nights where they were ready to, to give up on this. You know, so many paths lawmakers have taken in the past have failed. Going to the ballot box, voters said no to a new sales tax. But I think there was a new sense of, of urgency. You know, we're coming up on an election year. The Democrats only have a guaranteed majority for so much longer. And I'll let Steve Finberg, he's the Senate Majority Leader uh, from Boulder, who really worked on this bill for, for months, um, talk about how he thought it got to the finish line. I am confident that this was probably the most stakeholded piece of legislation, maybe in Colorado history. And uh, that is why it is good policy. That is why there, this is a bill that is going to solve this problem why there are such a diverse set of folks who supported this bill along the way that are here today, and why this is going to be such an important uh, thing for Colorado, uh, Colorado's future. So again, you know, they really attribute the, the passage of this to getting um, Republican mayors on board, for, for getting so many different groups on board. Uh, I think it was also important that lawmakers were, were willing to use stimulus money and a big investment from the general fund, so it wasn't just creating new fees. I think that kind of stalled a lot of the efforts in the past. Well, outside of the world of legislators, what sort of reaction have you seen to the signing of this? 
So immediately after the bill signing, I, I talked to Jonathan Godez. He's the mayor of Glenwood Springs, um, and he was particularly excited about the impact this bill uh, will have on his community. It's a huge chunk of our visitors, tourists, what our economy is based on is coming from the Front Range. They're flying into Denver, they're driving out our way to uh, go rafting, fly fishing, come to the Adventure Park, obviously the Hot Springs. And every time there's an accident on one of these hairpin turns on I-70, it hurts our economy. He also talked about, you know, some of the impacts uh, so many things have had on tourism in Colorado, from wildfires shutting down I-70 to rock slides. So you can see why he's really excited about more money being poured into um, this particular stretch of interstate. When can folks expect to see some changes as it relates to all of this transportation funding? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, a lot of these fees don't start until next year, so it's going to take time for this money to start flowing in. You know, this is an 11-year plan, so I think you'll start to see some movement as soon as next year, but we are still uh, several months away from, you know, shovels in the ground. KUNC Scott Franz. Thanks, Scott. Hey, my pleasure, Henry. Nearly six months after the shuttered venue operator grant was signed into law, most applicants say they have yet to receive word about their application, let alone any funding from the relief grant. Recently, in a memo to Congress, officials with the National Independent Venue Association said the continued delay will cause more theaters and concert halls to close. KUNC's arts and culture reporter Stacy Nick is with us now to tell us more about the issues surrounding the relief effort and what Colorado venue owners are saying. Hey, Stacy. Hi. Back in December, Congress passed the $16 billion relief package to aid concert hall, museum, and theater owners forced to close their doors during the pandemic. Yet, as of this week, less than 3% of applicants have received any of that funding. What's going on? Well, that's a great question, and it's one that venue owners are asking a lot right now. Um, it all started when Congress put the relief program into the hands of the Small Business Association. And it was kind of a disaster from the start with huge delays, just getting the application process online, followed by a three-week shutdown of the site due to technical problems. Then last week, the organization completely blew its first deadline to get funding to the hardest hit venues. The SBA is now moving the program into the hands of its Office of Capital Access, and they're the ones that oversaw the Paycheck Protection Program. And they're hoping that they'll have similar success getting money to venue owners. And I have to imagine this is incredibly frustrating for those who are waiting for funding, especially as they look out into the business landscape and see other sectors receiving relief. Exactly. Um, I spoke with Chris Zacker, who is the CEO of Denver's Levitt Pavilion and also chair of the Colorado branch of the National Independent Venue Association. And here's how he put it. It's been a nightmare, this whole process. I just don't even know what to say about it. You know, I, I feel like there are certain industries out there when they need it relief. And I'm not just talking about COVID, just over time, auto industry, the banks, even the restaurants, individual taxpayers, that relief came really, really quick from the time that it, that it was pushed through. And the SBA has done just about everything you can do wrong in this process. How have these owners survived so long without any aid? Well, for a long time, Neva estimated that 90% of venues would close without some kind of federal aid package. You know, through a mix of local and state aid efforts, an eviction moratorium, and some creative event planning, many more than expected by that estimation have survived. But until they get this funding, they say it's really impossible for them to truly get back on their feet. Well, and with restrictions being lifted and reopenings happening, does that help? 
Yes and no, uh, especially for the music industry. It's kind of more of a no. There's a lot of pre-planning that goes into reopening and establishing a concert season. There's rehiring staff, scheduling acts, paying deposits for artists. You know, again, here's Chris Zacker. Music isn't a light switch. It's three, six, nine, 12 months. So a lot of them can't even really begin planning their fall and winter seasons yet, at least at the level where they need to. And right now, a lot of indoor venues, which were hit the hardest by the pandemic, they are reopening. But, and this is a big but, they're planning maybe a few shows with bigger name acts, but mostly a lot of smaller shows with local artists, which draw smaller crowds and smaller ticket prices. And at that rate, without that federal funding to make sure they can get caught up on back rent and pay a full staff and contract with those bigger acts, they're still struggling. So what has been the SBA's response to all of this? Well, after some recent pressure, not only from Neva, but also many of the politicians behind the Save Our Stages Act, which later became the Shuttered Venue Operators Grant Program, it looks like some progress is happening. The SBA reported that 400 of the more than 14,000 applicants have received funding as of this week. They've also fixed several application issues, allowing those who might have been unfairly locked out of the process to reapply. And the SBA is also committed to processing 10,000 applications by July 2nd. Well, I suppose that's a bit of progress. (laughs) I think a lot of the venues are hesitant to celebrate just yet. It sounds like, for many, they'll believe it when they actually see that money in the bank account. Fair enough. Thanks, Stacey. Thank you. Stacey Nick covers arts and culture for KUNC. You can find more of her reporting and other arts coverage at our website, KUNC.org. As days of extreme heat and dryness have stretched through the beginning weeks of summer in Colorado, fire officials and climate experts are gearing up for what could be a very dangerous fire season. Last week, for the first time in 15 years, the National Weather Service issued an extremely critical fire danger warning for northwest Colorado. Meteorologist Russ Mann with the Rocky Mountain Area Coordination Center has been monitoring heat and weather patterns of the region. He's with us now to talk about the heat and what he's anticipating through the season. Hey, Russ. Hi. What regions in Colorado have been hit hardest recently in terms of heat and drought? Western Colorado, from the divide westward, really. And the most intense drought is over the uh, west-northwest portion of the state, with the uh, exceptional drought from the drought uh, monitor, their highest drought rating that they have. We have had some moisture uh, east of the divide along the Front Range, but it's a fine line between the uh, wetter conditions and the very extreme dryness just west of the divide. Is it common to see that kind of divide along the uh, mountain range? It's pretty common. This is a little more unusual because it seems like it's just much more extreme from one side to the other. So although uh, things are starting to dry out east of the divide as well recently with the uh, heat and now some uh, wind coming in at times. So we will see some relief east of the divide uh, along the front range and the uh, forecast to come, but it is drying out pretty good right now. Last year, Colorado experienced three of the worst wildfires that we saw on record. Do you think we could see more record-breaking wildfires this year? I can't really forecast the uh, specifics on uh, fire size, but the field conditions are definitely supportive of very large fires, and it's uh, extreme dryness. The limited fire activity due to kind of the spring green-up that we've been in, but that's rapidly 
those are uh, rapidly headed towards their curing phase. So we're losing that little bit of a guard against the larger fire, even though it was really dry, we did have a bit of a green up. So that's kind of going away. Yeah, it, things are definitely uh, primed for very large fires. Russ Mann is a meteorologist with the Rocky Mountain Area Coordination Center. Russ, thanks for chatting with us today. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. After the break, we'll get the latest on changes to Boulder's climate action plan. Last week, the city of Boulder got its first glimpse of a significant update to its climate action plan, a decades-old document outlining the city's commitment to mitigating climate change. Those updates include a focus on climate resilience, expanding the way emissions are calculated, and adopting more aggressive emissions reduction targets. KUNC's Ray Solomon spoke with Jonathan Cohen, who is director of Boulder's Climate Initiatives Department, to learn more about those updates. Can you just give us some background on Boulder's Climate Action Plan? What is it? How did it get started? What has it accomplished? Boulder really started its climate work in earnest decades ago, but really officially with the launch of our Climate Action Plan in 2005. And the funding source, which is our local climate action tax or cap tax, was in 2005, adopted by our community. And we've updated it periodically over the years. Um, Most recently, in 2015, we switched to more climate commitment. And then in 2019, we shifted to what we have been calling the Climate Mobilization Action Plan. And we really initiated that next generation of climate action in 2019 to, to really dive deep into some insights with the hope of revealing some key understandings about our effectiveness at the local level. Can you explain the significance or the scale of some of those changes? We've learned that climate change is not the problem, rather that it's a symptom of a range of unsustainable behaviors. We've also learned uh, that our current targets are insufficient, and we've learned from decades of doing this work that cities won't be able to achieve climate neutrality or the level of emission reductions necessary alone, nor will the success of a few cities alone be enough. So last week, you released a major update to the plan, and I'd like to hear about some of the biggest changes in that update. I would say that that update is really intended to recognize some of these key insights. And so our new approach is really about three things. First, it's a reset of ambition. Um, What I mean by that is that for us to achieve what we see as a bold new climate vision, it's clear that the coming decade are really going to require a suite of fundamental transitions in our key systems. And when I talk about systems, it's really recognizing that much of our work, and when I say our, it really is our collective work globally, has been focused on our energy systems. We're recognizing now the importance of other systems, our ecosystems, for example, our waste reduction systems, our financial systems, and our land use systems. So if we're going to create the conditions in which people and planet thrive, then we need to start to design for a just and regenerative future and really challenge everyone in our economy and society to examine what their role in creating that future looks like. Second, I think there is a a lot of resonance in being bold right now. Climate is what we call a threat multiplier. And so prioritizing and having a better understanding of vulnerabilities and how we can best support those that are most impacted is really a critical shift in the way we think about our climate action. And third, we've really set our sights on setting new aggressive science-based climate stabilization targets while strengthening our community's capacity to, say, adapt and thrive in a changing climate. 
part of that is about climate resilience rather than climate mitigation. That's what you mean by sort of assessing our vulnerabilities and figuring out how to adapt to meet them. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Our work in the past has been focused on resilience and infrastructure, making pipes bigger to move larger quantities of water from changing runoff patterns to uh, retention walls, making sure that our roadways are more uh, resilient to increased heat, for example. But the reality is we're starting to see all sorts of signs that changing climate really uh, forces us to look more deeply in terms of how we're protecting our most vulnerable populations. What are we doing around our facilities and buildings to recognize we'll see increased load, electricity load from more cooling? How are we going to protect our communities from increased and extreme heat events? Unfortunately, the past few years have been a stark reminder that climate changes are already occurring and they're going to continue to occur, which means that both resilience and equity have to become core design considerations integrated into all of our proposed strategies and all of our actions. Another one of these changes in the update that you mentioned that's pretty significant is more aggressive targets. And there were two major changes to that. One was sort of updating the baseline year for calculating emissions reductions. And the other was changing from a production-based emissions to consumer-based emissions. Can you talk a little bit more about how those targets have been changed? Boulder is aligning our goals with what needs to be done on a global scale with new goals of reducing emissions 70% by 2030, becoming net zero by 2035, and carbon positive by 2040. So the question then becomes, how do you do that? First, all human-caused greenhouse gas emissions need to be eliminated. We need to see deep decarbonization of energy, of buildings, of transportation systems. It also depends on significant changes in land use planning and ecosystem regeneration to, as I said earlier, sequester or pull out that carbon previously released. And these transitions have to require and align with economic and financial systems that value those actions. So you mentioned the idea of consumption-based inventories. Uh, Traditionally, cities uh, kind of focus their emission inventories solely on the production-based emissions that emanate within their city limits. So those emissions that are associated, say, with heating and cooling our homes, commuting to and from work, et cetera. So the standard accounting practice excludes consumption-based emissions stemming from things like goods and services and emissions caused by land and ecosystem degradation. So our approach is to incorporate both production and consumption-based emissions into our new methodology and our emissions unfortunately, are going to show a a significant increase. But it's honest and it's the right way to account for emissions that stem from our activities in one city. So Boulder is taking some pretty aggressive steps to reduce their emissions. But Boulder is also just one city. The question is, are all of these efforts futile if the rest of the country and the rest of the world even don't follow suit? One of the most powerful and insidious forces we face when it comes to climate change is resignation. That is this numb acceptance that we can't change things. That pertains to us as individuals and us at the community level. One of the things that we have really been thinking deeply about in Boulder is the importance of scaling, replicability, and collaboration with peers. 
In fact, one of the things that we did to address this issue of not thinking that one city can actually um, address the global climate crisis on its own is looking to build up these coalitions across the state. We were one of the founders of CC4CA, which is the Colorado Communities for Climate Action. Um, started with just a few jurisdictions looking at reforming climate policy in the state of Colorado. Now we have close to 40 across the state. And the impact and horsepower from that kind of collaboration is, is truly tremendous. Jonathan, are you optimistic about our climate future? I have to be optimistic about our climate future. I am. We are seeing every day our youth, our musicians, our poets, our athletes, uh, not just in Boulder, but across this nation and globally, stepping up to this challenge of a global climate crisis, taking meaningful action as an individual, taking collective action and working together to make the systems level change that is so necessary. So I am optimistic. Jonathan Cohen is director of the Climate Initiatives Department of Boulder. Thanks for joining us. It's been great. Take Me Somewhere Nice is a 2019 film from the Netherlands and Bosnia that is just now coming to this country, probably because the pandemic has also slowed film distribution. For KUNC film critic Howie Moshevitz, who teaches film at CU Denver, the movie has a good handle on absurdity. At least since the post-World War II years, films from the countries that once comprised Yugoslavia have a goofy side. But it's serious goofy. The late Serbian director Dusan Makaveev made wild films that rocked with lurid explosions of sex, politics, street theater, and offbeat philosophy all directed towards personal and political liberation. Bosnian filmmaker Emir Kustorica mixes family dysfunction with deep-seated mockery of Stalinism and the craziness that followed. Inesenda Yarevich's Take Me Somewhere Nice fits right into that absurdist and unsettling tradition. She's a Bosnian raised in the Netherlands, and so is her character Alma, Sarah Luna Zoric. Alma's about to go back to Bosnia to visit her father in a hospital. Alma hasn't seen him in a long time. Her mother simply writes him off as that bastard. What follows is mostly Alma's visit to her own divided self in a place of random dislocations. She speaks Bosnian but doesn't much connect to being there. A grumpy cousin picks her up at the airport, takes her to his apartment, and leaves her. She wanders the city and dyes her hair badly from brown to blonde. Her father lives in a small town a good distance from Sarajevo. Alma wants to take a bus to get to him, but faces a ticket clerk who doesn't care when buses run. At a rest stop, Alma wanders off, the bus leaves, and Alma has to hitchhike. And that leads to other improbables. The cousin and his friend, who fancies Alma, track her down, kidnap her, stick her in the trunk of their rickety car, and drive off to find their father. Director Inesenda Yarevich films all this from difficult angles to make the audience feel Alma's disconnect. Alma's shown in mirrors, but you don't know which is the direct view of her or which is the reflection. In tight spaces like toilets, the camera looks down and makes the cramped places tight and disorienting. You can't tell what's up or what's down. The sights make you wonder whether reality is stable. Alma watches a TV show on a creaky amateurish set with a tap-dancing astronaut. Alma rarely reacts to what she sees or has to live through. 
She kicks and screams when cousin Amir and Dennis shove her in the trunk, but afterwards she wears the same blank face as before. When the movie and Alma stare at long-held images of wide, empty spaces, the emptiness combines with the absurdity of what the characters are doing, and it feels baffling. The Bosnia that Alma tries to understand makes no sense. The sensibility of Take Me Somewhere Nice is not like most American films, or films from anywhere for that matter. It's distinct and unnerving, and it can be an acquired taste. But when you let yourself accept that strangeness, the movie is very funny because we share the sense of befuddlement far more than we like to admit. When a magician pretends to cut Alma in half, it's a teasing reminder that looking for our other half is a genuine feeling for human beings. The times when the movie escapes absurdity come when Alma's outside, in mountains, dry rolling hills, or the sea. These things are not confusing because human beings didn't make them. When Alma stares for many seconds at some big sterile space or at some random event, the commonality of human experience comes clear. At heart, Take Me Somewhere Nice is about loneliness, disconnection, and the urge for warmth and clarity with other people. The search for her estranged father isn't going to do Alma much good. It's the discovery of feeling that might get her out of this incoherent place. For KUNC, I'm Howie Mopshevitz. That's our show for today. On the next Colorado edition, the world's largest meat processing company, JBS, recently settled a federal lawsuit over claims of discrimination against Muslim workers at its plant in Greeley. We'll speak to a lawyer and a former worker involved with the case. I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production team includes Adam Reyes, Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.